Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back, everyone, to the Need to Know podcast. Joining me today, coming back on the podcast, is Amy Austin Holmes, who is a Wilson Center scholar. She's been with us before on the podcast to discuss the situation in Syria. She tracks these issues pretty closely. And, you know, while we've had so much going on, it's been a, a busy news month with the evacuation from Afghanistan, but also we've had wildfires and we've had hurricanes, flooding and things like that going on. Amy has been tracking something that's been going on in the Middle East that we think should probably be on people's radars. Uh, the situation going on with Turkey and with attacks in northern Iraq and in Syria. So, Amy, welcome back to the Need to Know podcast. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for having me. Well, I want to start by talking about a piece that you recently wrote that was featured in the Hill newspaper, and we'll put the link in the description uh, for this podcast so that people can read this. But why don't you give us a quick overview of what you were writing about there and what you were what you were getting across? Sure. So I wrote this op-ed in the Hill because in mid-August, Turkey carried out a series of airstrikes in Sinjar in Iraq, which is a disputed territory that has been claimed by both the central government in Baghdad and the Kurdistan regional government um, in the north. Sinjar is also where the genocide took place against the Yazidis in 2014, when the Islamic State assaulted um, Sinjar and Nineveh governorate, uh, killing and enslaving Yazidis, as well as other minorities, including Christians and Shia. Uh, who were also killed, abducted, etc. Um, and so Sinjar is a particularly fragile region of Iraq. It was very impoverished and underdeveloped even before the Islamic State genocide in 2014. And so since the Islamic State territorial caliphate has officially been defeated, Yazidis have really been struggling to return and rebuild. And um, an estimated 350,000 Yazidis are still living in IDP camps. They still cannot go back to Sinjar, even though the caliphate was defeated a few years ago for a variety of reasons, in part because of the lack of, of jobs or the lack of basic services. But one other major impediment for Yazidis to go back and rebuild their lives after the genocide is because Turkey has been conducting airstrikes in Sinjar on a regular basis. And I had a had actually conducted a, an analysis with two uh, co-authors, uh, Duane Hawazi, um, as well as a former intern of mine at the Wilson Center, Brett Cohen. And we published a report with ICSVE on five years of Turkish airstrikes in Sinjar. We created an original uh, data set by data mining from five different sources. And we found that Turkey had been conducting airstrikes every year for five years in a row. Um, 
even though Nadia Morad in 2018 already, the, the same year when she won the Nobel uh, Prize, had actually met with Turkish Foreign Minister Mevlut Cavusoglu and requested that Turkey and Iraq should work together to stop any further bombing of Sinjar so that Yazidis could go back and rebuild. And yet she has been ignored. And um, so we actually published this report with ICSVE in early August. We timed it to be published around the time of the anniversary of the Yazidi genocide. Um, and then tragically, just two weeks later, Turkey carried out another round of airstrikes in mid-August, um, killing 10 people. Seven of them were Yazidis. Um, and this happened very soon after the Taliban had essentially taken over Kabul. And so the world really was not paying attention to what was happening in Iraq. Uh, uh, but, but it's, I think, a real escalation that Turkey's been engaging in both in Iraq as well as Syria. And it's just kind of, as you mentioned, kind of gone, gone under the radar because of the, the situation in Afghanistan. So is it your contention uh, that these strikes in Iraq and in Syria are targeting Yazidis and Christians? Yes. So Turkey's in Iraq, Turkey's conducted a variety of airstrikes and drone strikes all across northern Iraq, the Kurdistan region of Iraq and Sinjar. Our report was specifically focused on, on Sinjar, but they've conducted you know, airstrikes in, in the Duhok governorate closer to the border with, with Turkey, Iran, uh, targeting, of course, as part of what they, they see as their anti-PKK operations. Now, in the case of Sinjar, with these recent airstrikes on, on August 16, one of the Yazidis who was killed was a man by the name of um, Hassan Saeed. He was a local Yazidi uh, leader who, at the time of the 2014 genocide, um, instead of you know, fleeing, he refused to abandon his community. He stayed, tried to defend Sinjar. He provided aid to those Yazidis who fled up onto the mountain of Mount Sinjar. And he was very well loved in his community. He later became a leader of a newly formed, essentially Yazidi self-defense force called the YBS. Now, back in 2014, the PKK, which is designated as a terrorist organization by Turkey and the United States, actually had intervened just days after the genocide took place to try to open up a corridor to allow the Yazidis to escape. And so actually there were a few dozen uh, PKK and YPG members who arrived in Sinjar even before the U.S.-led coalition did, even before the U.S. started conducting airstrikes there. Since then, the YBS has been established as a local self-defense force to protect the area of Sinjar um, because they were abandoned by others at the time of the, of the 2014 genocide. And since then, they've actually been incorporated into the Iraqi military. Um, Hassan Saeed was head of the 80th Regiment in the YBS, which is part of the tribal mobilization forces uh, known in Arabic as Hashta al-Sha'iri, which is part of the Hashta Shabi popular mobilization forces. Their salaries were paid by Baghdad. And so they, you know, are a legally recognized entity under the existing Iraqi, um, you know, security apparatus. And Hassan Saeed was also scheduled to meet uh, the Prime Minister, Mustafa Kademi, on the day that he was killed in this drone strike. Um, and so this is why I think it's, you know, he's a, it's, it's quite um, disturbing that Turkey would actually, you know, assassinate 
a local Yazidi leader on the very day he was scheduled to meet Prime Minister Mustafa Kadami. And then the following day carried out further airstrikes that targeted a hospital or a medical clinic that was used both by civilians and other members of the YBS. And as I said, the YBS are mainly Yazidis. Um, there were also two Arab members of the YBS that were also in the hospital or the medical clinic. Turkey again disputes this, but this is why I believe it would be important for there to be um, an investigation into what exactly happened. Because in other cases, when hospitals or medical clinics have been targeted, you know, they've usually been condemned uh, as targeting hospital is, uh, you know, a war crime. I mean, that's not something that should be. Let me jump in here with this, with a question then. I mean, obviously, Turkey has their policy here is seems to be to go after these Yazidi groups. Is it be, are they using the cover of the PKK being designated as a terrorist organization to attack that? Do they see YBS as being part of PKK? I know this is a, a constellation of alphabet soup too. So I want to be careful of, you know, for those who may not be as familiar here, but try to understand why Turkey is attacking in this way. Right. Well, so Turkey has fought an insurgency against the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, actually since the 1980s. And so there's been a long, you know, for decades, there's been an armed conflict going on within Turkey between the Turkish military and the PKK, which, as I said, is, you know, a terrorist organization um, recognized by, both by Turkey and the United States. The Turkish government engaged in peace talks with the PKK between 2013 and 2015 because Erdogan himself recognized that there was actually no military solution to this problem and that there had to be a negotiated settlement. Since the peace talks broke down in 2015, however, Turkey has resumed um, or rather, you know, the armed conflict resumed. And so we've again seen a, a return to um, a, a militarization of this conflict. And since then, Turkey has, I believe, expanded its definition of who counts as PKK. And so, for example, the Syrian Democratic Forces in Syria, who've been our main partner force um, on the ground to defeat ISIS, now are Arab majority. So the majority of the rank and file members of the SDF are Arabs because as the SDF defeated territory from ISIS and um, incorporated more and more Arabs into the SDF, they've now grown into an Arab majority force that also includes a Christian minority. And Turkey also basically sees them all as PKK terrorists. Um, so I, in, a, in a recent Wilson Center report that was published with the title Threats Perceived and Real, uh, new data and the need for a new approach to the conflict. I was kind of explaining how this conflict has transformed over the past um, few years from one that um, in the past was relatively limited to southeastern Turkey and, you know, PKK militants and the Turkish military to now it's expanded to become one of the largest conflicts in all of the Middle East. And it affects not just Turkey and, and the Kurds, but it affects literally every single religious and ethnic group that lives all across northern Syria and northern Iraq, including Yazidis and the Christian minority, Syrian, um, Assyrian Christians, Syriac Christians, Armenians, Arabs. And so this is why I think it's even more important now for the U.S. to get involved and, and you know, try to find a way to mediate this conflict because it's become... The, the, the toll on the civilian population has, has really um, increased exponentially. 
And the situation is pretty much the same in Syria, where they're they're going after Yazidis in Syria as well. Is that is that the case? So in Syria, also, again, over the past month, while people have been focused on Afghanistan, uh, Turkey has killed, I believe, over a, a dozen, a, around 10, 12, perhaps more members of the SDF, our U.S. partner force in Syria, the ones that we relied on to defeat ISIS. Um, and so... There have been a few reports recently that this is especially worrying for the SDF because, of course, with the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, other partner forces of the United States around the world are obviously asking themselves, how reliable are we as an ally if the U.S. withdraws from Syria or Iraq like we did from Afghanistan? What would happen to them? But this worry is compounded by the fact that Turkey is then carrying out these, uh, you know, targeted attacks against the SDF in Syria and against, as I mentioned, Yazidis and the YBS in Sinjar. And if the U.S. doesn't really respond to this, this compounds their sense of fear and that we're not really a reliable partner force. And that this is why I I think it would be important for the U.S. to take a, a more public facing position on this. I know that Acting Assistant Secretary Joey Hood has recently visited the region and, and so I know that there are attempts, I think, to mediate, and I think there are attempts to de-escalate. But I think that in addition to this sort of private diplomacy, a little bit more public facing, I think it would be important for members of Congress, for example, to, to speak out about this, because it's, it's, it's really, I think, disturbing for, for those who, you know, in Syria, basically, we've relied on for the past six years, you know, since 2014, 2015, and in, in the fight against ISIS, now they feel the fear of being abandoned is, I think, very real. I, I guess, you know, I guess I'm trying to get at why Turkey is doing this. Is it an ethnic thing? Are they simply hiding behind the terrorist thing? Or is there actually a policy of trying to control these areas. I guess I'm trying to figure out why, why you think Turkey is engaging in this policy over the last several years. Well, Erdogan actually um, announced quite publicly at a meeting of the UN uh, General Assembly back in 2019, uh, prior to the October 2019 intervention, he actually you know, held up a map at the UN that showed a corridor, which they were referring to as a safe zone, where... Basically, he was saying, you know, Turkey needs to control this entire strip of northern Syria, like the entire border of northern Syria that borders Turkey, uh, that that should be under Turkish control because he wanted to create a buffer zone because he claimed that Turkey was threatened existentially by the presence of the SDF in Syria. He has said very publicly that he believes Turkey should control that land. And Turkey intervened in 2018 and then again in 2019 and did actually occupy a large swath of, of Syrian territory. The U.S. then brokered a ceasefire agreement under former Vice President Pence, Secretary Pompeo. They traveled to Ankara. They signed a ceasefire agreement with Turkey that was supposed to stop that further expansion because they saw it as a, as a major uh, basically to U.S. national security and that it was destabilizing the whole, the whole region of northern Syria. Uh, perhaps, you know, Erdogan thinks now that he can push farther and that's why these recent attacks could actually be an attempt to, you know, further Turkey's territorial control that they've already 
established in, in Northwestern theory that they're trying to push the boundaries farther to the east, uh, which he publicly said he wanted to do back in 2019, but which was prevented by the, the U.S. brokered ceasefire agreement. So what's, what's Iraq's government response to this? That's a good question. Um, in 2017, when, so when Turkey, as I mentioned, has been conducting these airstrikes in northern Iraq for the past five years, and at times they've killed, uh, back in 2017, there were five Kurdish Peshmerga that were killed uh, by mistake by, in these Turkish airstrikes. And at the time, there was universal condemnation. So by the government in Baghdad and Erbil, the United States said that they were only given, I think, one hour's notice before Turkey went in and, and, and conducted these airstrikes. So there was condemnation from many different people back in 2017 um, when, when this happened. And recently, though, these recent airstrikes in, in August, the, the response was much more muted. And, you know, again, it could be because people were distracted by Afghanistan. It could, however, also be simply because, um, you know, Yazidis are still seen within Iraq as, you know, second-class citizens. I mean, they were among the poorest most discriminated, most persecuted prior to the genocide in 2014. That could be one of the reasons why we haven't seen the same kind of criticism uh, that we did back in, in 2017. But you, you have to ask Iraqi leaders <laughs> that question. I don't know. I can only guess. But they did criticize this as a violation of Iraqi sovereignty. Um, but again, the fact that 10 Iraqi citizens were killed is, you know, you would think there would be a stronger response this condemnation but how far does that really get you uh especially in when it's a violation of sovereignty in that in that way from a neighbor from a neighboring country well this is pretty interesting as i say i'll put the the link in the description down below and i think uh folks particularly policymakers on the hill you know if there's anybody doing uh committee hearings or any investigations into this i think they they know who to call on but uh, Amy, do you have any final thoughts before we leave this off here? Well, I would just say as a final comment that the, the situation in both northern Iraq and northern Syria is still quite fragile, especially in northern Syria. The Al-Hol camp is detaining. There are some 62,000 ISIS-affiliated people, families, but also many children that are being held in the Al-Hol camp. And if these Turkish operations continue to target various locations in northern Syria, I'm worried that this could potentially have larger ramifications. If, if the, the Syrian Kurds or the SDF feel that the United States could abandon them if we don't speak up and even you know, condemn these Turkish airstrikes that are literally killing the SDF leaders who led the fight against ISIS, they might begin to shift their calculations mm -hmm. and they are responsible for the camp that's holding 62,000 ISIS people or affiliates. Um, hmm. And so, you know, we do still very much rely on them um, because the, the de-ISIS mission is continuing, but we're also relying on them to manage a camp of, you know, 62,000 people from 57 different countries. And unfortunately, many of those countries whose you know, citizens left Europe or other parts of the Middle East and traveled to Syria to join ISIS. 
they're refusing to repatriate them. Hmm. I mean, that's what we would like in the United States. Our policy is that every country should repatriate their citizens and take them out of Syria and you know, put them on trial in their own countries. But unfortunately, many countries are refusing to do that. And so that leaves the SDF responsible for taking care of 62,000 you know, ISIS families and fighters. And so the security of that camp is, is absolutely essential that that the you know general situation in northern Syria needs to remain such that they can continue to guard and, and secure the camp. And if these Turkish military operations continue to target SDF leaders, they will understandably have to, you know, possibly shift their priorities to right. maintaining their own forces, to their own force protection, rather than protecting the ISIS fighters. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, there's an it undermines it undermines the the security. Right. In a in a very in a fragile, uh, fragile area to begin with, but then you also right. have all of these thousands of fighters that uh, right. So that is a uh, that's a pretty jarring image there too. This is one of the things I like about working at the Wilson Center is that we have scholars who really keep track of these things, even even when the world and the media bounces around. It's good to have folks who are focused on this sort of thing. And, and uh, I know that there's a lot going on in the world today, but Amy Austin Holmes, we're glad that you're tracking this. Appreciate having you back on the podcast. And we will link in the description some of the work that you have mentioned here today. And we'll look forward to tracking it and having you back soon. Thank you so much, Aaron. <laughs>